0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It is now my pleasure to introduce our final speaker for the day, Dr. Jill Hopkins. Dr. Jill Hopkins received her medical degree from McMaster University, Ontario, Canada. She completed her internship in residency in ophthalmology at the University of Toronto, Canada, and went on to study retinal diseases in London, England. Later, she returned to Toronto and went into academic practice specializing in macular degeneration and inherited retinal diseases. From 2004 to 2006, Dr. Hopkins was an assistant professor of ophthalmology and has directed the retinal degeneration program at the Doheny Retina Institute. She is also affiliated with Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Since June 2006, she has joined Retina Vitreous Associates in Los Angeles to develop a comprehensive program in macular and retinal degenerations. Today, Dr. Hopkins will share with you an update on clinical trials in retinitis pigmentosa. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jill Hopkins.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I was saying to Carmen, I never say no when she asked me to come and speak. Uh, and I'm very pleased today to talk about something that a few years ago would have been a very brief talk. Uh, we were talking about clinical trials in retinal degenerations. In general, we didn't have a whole lot that was happening. Um, Dr. Schwartz did an outstanding job this morning going over macular degeneration, this talk is really going to focus on retinitis pigmentosa and other inherited retinal degenerations, which are a little bit different from macular degeneration. The classic um, that we know most about is retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, and that's really kind of a reverse disease from macular degeneration. People lose their night vision and their peripheral vision um, gradually over many, many years, then may go on to lose central vision as well. So it's more of a peripheral vision loss. It is genetically mediated, so we know it's glitches in the the DNA that cause the disease to form. Um, And for many, many years, we have seen it as a slowly progressive degenerative disease for which we have had no treatments. And that's been downright discouraging for everybody. But that is absolutely changing, considerable new hope on the horizon. So what I'm going to do this morning is take you through the state of the art where we're at with clinical trials for RP, where we hope that's going, And it's important to know that a lot of the concepts, a lot of the ideas overlap heavily with dry or atrophic macular degeneration. So as Dr. Schwartz mentioned in his talk, the dry form is this neurodegenerative disease, which is very similar to RP and other retinal degenerations. So a lot of the compounds and directions that we're exploring in RP, we hope, and are also testing in some of the dry forms of AMD. So there is overlap. What I'll do um, also is take a few minutes to give you sort of the, the 101 course on clinical trials. What does that mean? What is a clinical trial? How do we define that? Hopefully some of you are in or will be in these trials. I know we had one audience member say he'd been contacted from USC about their trial. We're going to talk about that. But I'm just going to try and empower you with a little bit of information that you can take away if you are considering a trial, um, that you'll just know a little bit about what to ask, what to expect. Um, you need to sort of make sure you're, fully informed before you take part in any trial. Um, so we'll talk about general introduction. We'll go over the trials that are ongoing now for RP. Some of those results are very soon to be available to us over the next six months or so. So I'm hoping Carmen's going to invite me back fairly quickly so I can bring you up to date on all that over the next year. And we'll leave lots of time at the end as well for questions and answers. I, like Dr. Schwartz, will refrain from any personal question answering it's just too difficult to do without examining people. So we'll keep the questions to a general um, bent if we can. So a clinical trial basically is um, an interventional um, research study. So it's a health-related research study where we're going in and we're asking a specific question related to a specific disease. Um, sometimes we will actually intervene with a treatment. Sometimes we'll just observe what the disease does. And for years in retinitis pigmentosa, all we did was observe. We would try and determine what type you had, how quickly it would progress. We'd tell you 25 years later at what rate you'd lost your vision. But there wasn't a lot in terms of intervention. Thankfully, now that's changing. And we now look at everything from treatment to prevention to diagnostic. Clinical trials may have very many different avenues that they're exploring. Um, Some will look at quality of life. How does a particular treatment improve somebody's day-to-day living with vision loss? And then there are different phases. So in phase one, that's a very early study. And often what's happening there is that investigators are just trying to determine if a particular compound is safe. So a phase one trial, there's no data to give you on whether this will work or not. Usually it's been explored in animal models or, or bench research that lets us think it would be useful to try in humans. We then have to give you that drug, and in the phase one or safety trial, we say, does this cause any problems? It's not even finding out if it works. It's trying to say, is this going to cause harm in any way? And sometimes we're discouraged that we do try a small group of people with something and don't get the result we expect. That trial then wouldn't go forward. Hopefully in phase one you see, yes, this compound is safe. Um, we didn't experience any untoward side effects. Now we'll go forward with phase two. And in phase two, where most studies are um, where you'll be um, involved, I would think, are now saying we have safety data. Does this work? Is this an effective treatment? What is the efficacy or effectiveness of the trial? And that's usually a much larger group of people, 1 to 300 people, for example. If phase 2 looks good, then you may go on to phase 3, which is a large expanded trial. Now we're looking at maybe enrolling 3,000 people into a trial of that size. And at each of these stages, the FDA, as Dr. Schwartz mentioned, plays a very important role in evaluating the safety, the efficacy, the ability of this compound to go forward. So everybody works in concert on that. Now, you may ask, well, for phase three, for a rare disease like RP, how do we recruit 3,000 people? And in fact, usually you don't have to. The FDA recognizes that RP and related rare genetic disorders are uh, what we call orphan diseases, that there aren't a lot of people that have them. So we can do research in slightly different ways in terms of not needing those vast numbers of people to show an effect. And we'll talk a little bit about how we do that in the trials that are running now. Um, then you may have a phase four study, which is often after a drug has been approved. So something like Lucentis that we're using for wet AMD, that went through every single one of these phases. Many, many, many years go by while you're going through phase one, phase two, phase three. Now that that drug is out on the market being used extensively, we still collect data on patients and we're saying, are there unexpected safety issues? Is the duration of effect what we expected? So we keep looking at that even as we go forward um, with effective treatments. Phase 4 may be an endless number of people. <laughs> they, people may just submit data on patients. Um, so there may be tens of thousands in a Phase 4 study over time. Um, and if you're going to participate in a clinical trial, the first step you go through is this whole idea of inclusion and exclusion. And that's something sometimes you take personally. I know the clinical trials that we've um, recruited patients for, you come in, you spend a very long day uh, going through multiple, multiple tests. And these, these criteria are determined ahead of time. So for an RP trial, you might have to have a certain visual acuity on the chart, you might have to have a certain visual field uh, measurement, you may have to have a certain intraocular pressure, you can't have glaucoma, you can't have a cataract, you may go through all of this and be told at the end of the day, I'm sorry you don't meet those criteria, you can't be in the study. And that can be kind of devastating. Do not take that personally if you go through that. These are predetermined criteria designed to try and show whether this treatment's going to work. So It's not a a personal, you know, choice one way or the other. Sometimes you may go through it all and decide this is a little more than I bargained for. I don't want to have to come every week for three hours for testing. Um, And we'll talk a bit about that as well. So just make sure that you're clear what those criteria are, what you're getting into, um, and that you're sure that this is something you can fulfill as well uh, as the study team. And you will have to sign what's called an informed consent. That's an important process. I know many of you who've had treatments often have this piece of paper placed in front of you just as we're about to stick a needle in your eye or put a laser in there. The informed consent process is, um, particularly for a clinical trial, important. Take your informed consent home. Read through it with a family member. Most of these are about 20 pages long, um, but you need to be clear that you're you're, um, aware of all the different procedures of the study, what the study's going to design to look at, what are potential risks and excuse me, benefits to you. Um, and important to know, too, that a big part of informed consent is that you may withdraw any time. This is a, a f- um, document that you sign, but it's not signed in blood. It doesn't mean you never can leave the study. It's an ongoing process, and you can withdraw at any time. Um, so that's important to know. You're in, in control of, of your study participation. Um, what are the benefits? Then? People say, well, why would I go on a clinical trial? Well, Sometimes you're at the cutting edge of new treatment. The people that were in the Lucentis trials that we had the pleasure of being involved in, that was a lot of fun. You know, for 20 years, we had had no success restoring vision with wet AMD, started to see that, yes, that was happening. That was a very exciting thing. So those patients got to benefit years ahead of um, the rest of people in the community waiting for the drug to be approved. So you certainly do get a very active role in your own health care, exposure to new treatments. Um, You're often obtaining expert medical care at a top-notch research facility. Most clinical trials are fully funded by sponsors or or government agencies, so there are no uh, high costs to you in terms of insurance or other challenges. Some of the risks, though, is that you often don't know, particularly for early studies. And in RP, a lot of them have been those early studies. It takes a brave soul to say, okay, put that pellet in my eye or put that uh, prosthesis in my eye and let's see what happens. We have no data on that. Sometimes we have unfortunate um, side effects that we weren't expecting, um, so that's certainly one of the risks. The experimental treatment may not be effective. We've certainly had clinical trials through the years that we have gone through and pursued and done everything. doesn't work out in the end. The compound doesn't work. So you may go through all of that without, unfortunately, having um, a home run. And then, as I mentioned, the protocol, what's actually asked of you in a clinical study, may be more than you want to uh, undertake at any given time. So you may need to come once a month. You may need to come once a week. You may need more photographs than the next guy. So you have to kind of weigh those things out as well. Okay, but I think armed with that, um, if you do get approached about being in a trial or if you read about clinical trials and you're interested in being part of that, kind of go armed with that information, know what to ask and how to go forward. There's a great uh, website uh, run by the National Institute of Health called clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V, and they list all the currently recruiting clinical trials. You can search by disease, um, and it pops up everything that's going on uh, in the United States. Um, So a lot of good information out there. So when we look at trying to develop a clinical trial specifically for retinal degenerations, The challenge with retinal degenerations, and as all of you sitting here know, is that when those retinal cells get sick, whether it's either from aging, they've been around too long and can't do what they need to do, or whether it's an early onset genetic condition, the retinal cells basically aren't functioning. They're not in a good environment. They kind of trigger this unfortunate cycle where they make the other cells around them get sick too. And we just haven't had good ways to go in there and say, let's reverse that cycle. Either stop it from happening in the first place slow it down somehow, or get in there and replace the cells that are no longer working. And those three arms are basically how we've started tackling approaches to retinal cell regeneration or or rescue of retinal cells. So the first idea we're talking about is saying, well, what can we do to perhaps repair or prevent this initial injury? Aging, we haven't found the fountain of youth. That's a tough one. But in genetic diseases, we're able to say, right, let's find the specific glitch in that DNA. We'll find what's missing there. Think of your genetics just like a recipe. In retinal degenerations, you have one ingredient that's mixed up. It's not working right. Your retina can't function right, and you develop RP. The rest of you is perfect, but for your retinas, they're not working well. So then you say, well, if we can pinpoint what that problem is, let's replace that. Let's fix that. That's the concept of gene therapy, actually going in and giving you that new ingredient. That's kind of the holy grail. We would say we may actually cure diseases if we can pull gene therapy off, and we're starting to, and that's exciting. I'll tell you all about that. The other idea, though, is to say, well, even if we can't cure it, can we get in there and protect the cells? Can we stop this cycle? And yes, it looks like we can to some extent. Studies are ongoing now looking at this idea of of rescuing retinal cells in their own environment. And those are called neuronal survival agents. So we have a couple of those in clinical trial that we'll talk about. And then there's the idea of saying, well, what if we just try and replace or bypass these cells that aren't working? And that's um, where the retinal prosthesis comes in that we talked a little bit about in Dr. Schwartz's session, uh, the USC group working on um, new electronic retinal cells. And I'll talk about that one as well. So the idea, as I mentioned, with gene therapy is to say, what can we do to maybe go in there and correct the actual gene mutation? There are um, many, many forms. We know there are probably a couple of hundred different genes that look um, at producing retinitis pigmentosa. But I'll talk about one model that's been very successful for a very early-onset form of RP. There's a disease called Leber's congenital amaurosis, or LCA. And it's RP usually diagnosed before a child turns one year of age. So it's a very early-onset, very severe retinal degeneration. And there are many different genes that cause that. We've found about 12 of them so far. But one specific gene that's called RPE65, there won't be a test at the end, so don't worry, but the idea is this very specific gene also happens to occur naturally in a type of dog, a Briard dog. So researchers almost 10 years ago now started working with that gene, that RPE65 gene in dogs. And they were able to find out what that gene did, what protein was missing. They manufactured a new replacement, and they injected that under the retina of these dogs. And lo and behold, the dogs got their sight back. So pretty amazing. I still recall sitting in the meeting where they presented this, um, and it was two big outcomes that they looked at. One was the ERG. Many of you have probably had that fun test where you sit in the dark, you have a contact lens put on your eye, we flash lights at you, and we get a tracing much like an EKG from our heart. And the classic thing, unfortunately, in retinitis pigmentosa is that your ERG goes flat. It doesn't respond anymore. Um, these dogs had flat ERGs. Until they were treated with this gene therapy, their ERGs came right back up to near-normal dogs. So amazing. And then they had they showed a video of this behavioral evaluation Lancelot the now famous dog who goes to Congress and uh, barks about gene therapy there um, is shown you know the untreated dog trying to do an obstacle course bumping into absolutely everything along his way Lancelot one of the treated dogs easily navigating that course clear vision in that eye so that was pretty fantastic people were thrilled by that Um, they treated 40 more dogs same results tremendous results so that animal data was good enough to go to the FDA and say, hey, we think we would like to try this in human subjects. So they did that. And, in fact, um, last year this time they presented the first results of six patients treated with this gene therapy, again, just the RPE65. So unless you have that specific gene, not for you. But in humans, they found similar to the dogs, not as striking a result, but you have to remember... These patients were people that hadn't seen throughout their lifetime. Everyone in the first trial was 18 years or older, and that was the inclusion criteria. You had to be 18. But even with that, we did see some uh, restoration of function. There's one patient who had a tremendous improvement, again, of navigating this obstacle course. It's an amazing video to watch. So that took us to the point, now in these six patients where we've said, gene therapy looks like it's safe. It looks like it can be done. It's a surgery where you go into the operating room and with a tiny little needle, inject this gene product underneath the retina, detaches the retina for a day or two. Everything settles down and the gene product starts to work its way into those cells. So tremendous, tremendous potential. And those phase one, these safety studies, looked so promising. We're now moving into phase two, treating children as young as eight years old now. So we're moving into a younger group where we hope the effect will be even better. So the gene therapy, keep your your ears uh, tuned for that. There's going to be more on that. Certainly the hope is that there'll be a much larger group of diseases over time that will benefit from gene therapy. So things like Stargardt disease, Usher syndrome, choroideremia, all of these other rare retinal degenerative diseases, now that we've kind of got this proof of principle, we've shown that it looks to be safe and early um, effective um, data is available, hopefully that's really going to open up the gene therapy. Again, you have to make sure you have that gene. If you have Stargardt disease with one genetic subtype, treatment for RP65 won't help you at all. So it's very specific, and and you need to be genetically tested um, to go forward in that. But a very exciting field, and uh, again, hopefully there'll be more and more updates on that as we go forward. So that's the concept of trying to repair that initial insult. But if we look at ways that we might actually just protect the cells, we say, okay, we know we're dealing with RP, that's our situation, what can we do to modify that? And in that area, we have a couple of exciting clinical trials that are going on. The idea, again, being what can we put in the eye? Is there something we can inject or or surgically implant in the eye that might keep those cells robust and healthy for longer? And a lot of people will say, if I could just stay where I am, I'd be okay. We'd all like to be better, obviously. But as one of my colleagues says, we're not greedy in retinal disease. We'll take what we can get. And if we had something that said, I can hang here for another five or ten years while the stem cell researchers and the gene therapy folks work that out, that would be a good thing. Whether it's dry AMD or RP, stabilization would be terrific. So, the idea, um, there are two different trials going on. One is again a phase one, so we're early into that. But it's a compound called bromonidine, which some of you who have glaucoma may know as AlphaGan. It's a drop that's been used for many years, topically applied eye drops for glaucoma. But it, for, also for many years, we've had the suggestion from patients being treated with glaucoma that that agent may actually be protective for nerve cells. So the folks at Allergan said, well, what would happen if we tried to get an intraocular delivery device? What, what if we could put that compound right inside the eye in patients with RP or dry macular degeneration? Let's see what would happen. So we are at the phase, we're injecting into the eyes of um, patients, a small number of phase one safety patients, a little pellet, we do it in the office, so it's a, an in-office procedure. We numb the eye and shoot this pellet in there. It floats around inside the eye and gradually, in a slow, sustained way, releases this bromonidine. So updates on that to follow, but that one is in progress uh, as we speak. And then there are two um, other trials in RP, which are almost finished. They've been running for almost two years. Same concept with a a compound that's called CNTF. Again, no test at the end. But the idea behind CNTF is that it was looked at first in multiple animal models. They looked at 13 different models of retinal degenerations in animals, dogs, rats, mice, um, and showed that this compound, actually restored cell layers. It brought cell layers back that were absent before. Again, the animal model looked so good. Off to the FDA, they said, yes, go ahead, look at a phase one trial. And this um, design, again, it's a surgical procedure, but a very elegant design where they've manufactured a little factory, basically. It's a little pellet. It is no bigger than the head of a pencil. And inside it are cells that have been biologically modified so they can keep pumping out this growth factor. Again, the idea is giving a sustained release of a, of a drug or a medication or a protectant that keeps the cells alive. About a 15-minute procedure, they hook the implant in the eye. It's not visible afterwards at all. Um, and the phase one studies looked tremendous. So 10 patients, advanced RP, question was, is this safe? Does it cause any problems? No. In the 10 patients in the safety study, no concerns. Um, um, three of those patients actually had significant improvement in their vision. These were patients who had not read the chart for many years. We're seeing three lines better on the eye chart. Again, only three out of the 10, but very good initial suggestion of um, safety and efficacy. So a couple years ago, we started enrolling the Phase two trials here. There are um, sites around the country, and we've enrolled now 120 patients with RP, divided into two groups, because the the interest um, and question we've had is, you know, is there a certain time in the course of RP where these compounds may be more or less helpful? So there are two main study groups, both with 60 patients in each. One, we're calling the more advanced RP group. So they have small, uh, constricted fields, and their central acuity has also been affected. So they're the more advanced group. Then we have an earlier group, less advanced, may still have 20-20 central vision, but have the peripheral field loss. So the question in both those studies is, does the insertion of this compound help Um, modify the course of the disease. We're obviously hoping it will bring some vision back, but can we actually look at um, a stabilization? And we are very, very close on that data. Probably by the fall this year, September, October, those studies will be closed and evaluated. Again, the safety data has been terrific. We've had no safety alerts in 120 people. Um, the efficacy data, we don't know yet. We're not being cagey. We're just, it's all masked, so we don't know what dose or what eye. It's all very important that it's done in a, a what we call a masked fashion. The way the studies are run is that one eye gets treated, one eye does not, but the patient doesn't know. They have some sort of procedure on each eye, that then lets us analyze the data saying, well, the eye that wasn't treated progressed more rapidly than the eye that was. So it lets us use a smaller sample size to get good statistical data. And I see people kind of chugging because this is what we talk about when we say going into a clinical trial, it's, you know, there's a certain degree of um, unusual practices that they know from the get go. They may get um, a low dose, they may get a high dose. They're not going to know which eye was treated. Both will be treated so to speak though they know one I will not have an active implant so there's a lot of sort of um you know, back and forth on, on how all of this unfolds. But we're very excited. You know, certainly the safety data looks great. We're really hoping that this will be something that would then allow us to treat um, patients with RP. And the FDA has been very cooperative. They've agreed to what they call fast-track the data, meaning that as the data sets roll in, um, they will evaluate them and hopefully have an answer for us whether this would be a marketable treatment, meaning anyone could get it, um, Within about six months after the studies are closed. So that's, uh, you know, certainly nipping at our heels. That's not a long time. One of my patients said, I've been waiting for a treatment for 30 years. Another six months <laughs> isn't going to bother me. So we're, we're close on some of these. The nice thing about the, the neuroprotection or, or um, cell rescue ideas is that it, that's not going to be completely um, reliant on knowing your genetic subtype. We hope that it will have effect downstream of any specific genetic defect, may help multiple uh, patients, regardless of the the gene type. So there's a lot of excitement about that, and again, hopefully this time next year uh, we'll have some uh, thoughts on that. Then we'll talk a little bit about um, the idea of, of implanting, transplanting, bypassing, trying to uh, restore function to cells that we know aren't working. And the really exciting um, field here has been uh, spearheaded by Dr. Humayan, who's at uh, USC, um, I had the pleasure of working uh, on that trial initially when I arrived here from Canada a few years ago. And again, six brave patients um, that had not seen light even for many, many years agreed to have these first implants uh, put in their eye. And the concept is fairly straightforward. It's actually very simple, similar to um, cochlear implants for deafness. So the idea is that although those sensory cells, NRP or AMD, it's the rods and cones that are affected, but those sensory cells aren't working anymore. We know, though, that a lot of that inner retina, other cells and layers that signal the brain, Still work. They don't work normally, but they still work. So the idea is, well, if we can replace those rods and cones, those photoreceptors with electrodes that can stimulate the rest of the visual system, maybe we'll have some success with that. So the, the first six brave souls agreed to a uh, surgery that at that time was about eight hours long. They had to have an implant in the eye. They had to thread an electrode back to a receiver behind the ear. I mean, it was a major thing. Um, but again, some pretty exciting results. So. Again, the first group, we were talking about people who hadn't seen light for years. They went to um, being able to see doorways, structures, um, certain shapes, only when wearing glasses. It's important to know that it's a a system that hooks to a wireless uh, camera system and glasses together with the electrode array in the retina, then stimulates vision. So those six patients are continuing to be followed and are, are doing well. They now um, have graduated to the next number of electrodes. So the first group was just 1-6 six, or 16 electrodes, um, which we know is only going to give rough form vision. We don't expect you're going to read with a 16-electrode array. So the next group that is now enrolling around the country, and our, our one person who heard about that study, that's probably what that was relating to, they're now at six zero sixty 60 electrodes. And they're looking at whether they can increase the resolution and and the improvement um, of function. They think to get reading vision back, you need about 1,000 electrodes. So we're still a little ways away from that fine detail vision that so many of us would would be very happy to have back. Um, (coughs) But it is making tremendous headway. And I'm going to close on um, that trial, just from reading uh, to you a couple of um, patient reports. Excuse me. (coughs) On using the glasses, because I think, you know, as as we all sit here living with vision loss and the issues that that um, gives us, it's just exciting to see the hopefulness. So again, people who had not seen light even for many, many years. uh, This is one uh, lovely grandma who says, on Friday morning, I put the electronic glasses on for the kids in the living room, and the front door was open. I was able to see where the door was, and of course, all the kids running by. And then on Saturday, my grandson's first soccer game the field looked shorter and smaller, and the uniforms are lighter, and we're sitting closer to the field, so I was able to follow the pack up and down the field, because they run in a pack, they're only four. <laughs> um, and another gentleman navigating and eating. I could see the traffic lights and the shops who went by, and at the restaurant, I could tell where the placemat was and where the table was. So again, tremendous improvement. So we really are now on the cusp of a a tremendous new uh, horizon environment. It, it takes all of you sitting in the room to help all of this go forward, um, along with us and the FDA and all the other uh, myriad of people. Um, and in the meantime, using the wonderful services of places like the Braille, who help our day-to-day life uh, be so much better while we work to achieve these cures. So I'm happy to take any questions, and thank you.
0: Okay, we have a, we have a question right here. Yes. Um, If the gene is in one family member, will the same gene be in the other family members, exactly the same?
1: Right. That's a great question. So um, if the gene is in one family member, will it be the same gene in other affected family members? Right. So we or the care- right. So the genetics is complicated and there are multiple different forms of inheritance and it kind of depends on the form of inheritance that you have to answer that question carefully. So if you take, um, you know, certain forms of inheritance that are called X-linked, so the, the woman carries the gene, she may not be terribly affected with the disease because she has other protective genes that help her not be as strongly affected. So some carriers never know they carry the gene. Others are affected earlier and more severely. Though if the women then pass that gene onto their sons, classically those boys get hit pretty early and pretty hard. In, in classic X-linked RP, it's a fairly early-onset disease um, that uh, is completely different from how the carrier female would behave. So that's kind of X-linked. If you take something like recessive disease, there both parents have to carry an abnormal gene. So the classic recessive inheritance is brown-eyed mom, brown-eyed dad, have a blue-eyed kid. And everyone's looking at each other saying, well, where did these blue eyes come from? We don't have those in our family. But mom carries a blue, and my, I have this in my family. I'm explaining it all the time to my husband. <laughs> so uh... <laughs> right, right, and he still doesn't. I've, I have recessive diagrams on the bedroom wall. He still doesn't get it. So, <laughs> but so I carry the blue eye gene. My husband does too. We both have brown eyes because our brown eye gene wins out in us. But when our son got my blue eye gene and my husband's blue eye gene, he got the blue eyes. By default, there was nothing else he could get. And recessive is common, so not just for blue eyes but for RP. It's probably the most common. So mom and dad are walking around, probably never heard of RP in their whole life because their good gene completely protects them from their RP gene even declaring itself there. But every time you have a kid, there's a one in four chance that that child gets both recessive genes, gets the disease, nothing to protect them. So it kind of depends, but so in dominant it 's fifty percent, so in dominant disease, this is why people have full degrees in genetic counseling, which i don 't but i 'm doing my best so the, um, in dominant disease, you have one gene that is big and bad enough that if if you get that gene, you get the disease from mom or dad doesn 't usually just one parent carries that one doesn 't really matter what the, what the other partner has, but if you get that, but there 's a fifty percent chance you get that each child. So you may get the disease, you may not. But if if you get the gene, you've got the disease, N- nutshell. <laughs> but there's a lot of variability even within families of, of how people present. Yes?
0: Does it Parkinson's disease influence eye
1: diseases? It's a good question. So does Parkinson's disease influence eye diseases? Um, Parkinson's disease may, in in a day-to-day way, affect um, the quality of vision by um, patients with Parkinson's having lower blink rates. They're much more prone to dry eye symptoms on the surface of the eye. Most of that can be treated with good lubrication. The the disease itself, no. We don't think that people with Parkinson's are more likely to have RP or AMD. But a lot of the research, a lot of these neuroprotective agents that we're looking at, there's tremendous interest in in other neurologic fields like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, some of these other neurodegenerative diseases that we may hit on something that will help all of them because a lot of the processes are the same. I have a question right here. Yes. Oh, I'll speak to that in a minute. We'll just wait for the microphone, okay?
0: Hi, Dr. Hopkins. I had a question. Are there clinical trials being held right now for RP? And if so, do you
1: have information that we'll get later? Right. So that's a good question. What's currently enrolling for RP in clinical trials? So we are um, enrolling at USC the ARGUS II. That's the retinal prosthesis trial. It's called ARGUS. Uh, based on the electronic device, um, they are currently enrolling for people that have light perception vision or worse, so very advanced disease. We're kind of in between trials. The CNTF trials are fully enrolled, so they're not actively recruiting, but as soon as we get results on that, we'll, there may be more clinical trials that stem from that, or we may look at that as an available treatment. Um, Again, the bromonidine trials are just kind of in between, but keep your ears um, to the ground on that one because the phase one, if it looks good, bromonidine will start uh, probably enrolling phase two fairly quickly. So, and, you know, Braille keeps up to date on that. FFB has a website. So just, you know, keep in touch with, with, you know, your eye care people, everybody on on where we're at with trials. Is it worthwhile pursuing this letter I got? So that letters referring to the retinal prosthesis, the 60 electrode. Yeah. It depends what vision you're at. If you're light perception vision, um, you should definitely go talk to the team and see what you think. You know, the the, commi- the commitment for that trial is big. The testing is very... Very intensive. Patients are there probably at least once a week. So you just need to be sure that you can commit to that. But there's no harm in being evaluated by the team, seeing whether that was something you might want to pursue. The surgery is much easier now. Uh, It's not an eight-hour procedure. They've got everything um, housed in one band that goes around the eye. So it's not the major surgical intervention that it was. Do
0: you have a question, sir? A few years ago, there was the Harvard study recommending 50, fifteen salmon daily IUs of vitamin A palmitate. Is that still looked on as good? And if so, could you remind me, because I've been doing it, can you remind me of what it? is what I'm supposed to think it will do for me.
1: (laughs) Right. Okay, so the question was the high-dose vitamin A study, which um, was run many years ago out of Harvard now, recommending 15,000 IU of vitamin A to help slow RP. The bottom line, I would say, for that, if you took 10 RP specialists and polled them, there would probably be Three or four that said go for the high dose, there'd probably be a, a somewhat larger percentage that said no. The the bottom line, um, vitamin A is unlikely to hurt you in high doses as long as you're making sure you're getting your liver checked because it is cleared by the liver and your liver enzymes can go high on too much vitamin A. So it's important that you're monitoring that. Um, it's not likely harming you. The the, the debate over the data um, was that after six years of following patients on the high dose vitamin A, The effects were visible only in ERG micro-voltage, so that ERG test that we do. People's central vision was not remarkably different. Field progression wasn't remarkably different. Um, So there were questions of whether that was a clinically relevant endpoint, you know, to put someone on a high dose of something when your only positive outcome was this ERG response. Now, Dr. Burson, who, who ran the trial, feels that that ERG response is very important in maintaining vision. Other people are less convinced. The other one concern with the study was that at the time it was done, we were not as proficient at genetic subtyping. And as Dr. Schwartz mentioned this morning, certain types of eye disease aren't going to want too much vitamin A. Most classic RP is okay for that, but there are certain forms like Stargardt disease, um, which is more of a macular degeneration, but sometimes will mimic RP in later stages that wouldn't want the high-dose vitamin A. So it's kind of a balancing act. If someone's been on it for years, tolerating it well, no liver concerns, I don't stop it. But I have just the discussion we had with my patients about the pros, the cons, I'm a firm believer in antioxidants. I think we will come up with vitamin regimens based on good science that that will be useful. But I'm not sure we're there yet.
0: Yes, uh, percentage-wise, is it R.P. more genetics toward males or females?
1: Good question. It depends on the type of inheritance. Um, dominant and recessive disease, men and women are hit equally. Um, X-linked, the men are, are hit more with the disease, the women carry the gene. But as a as a general rule, with the exception of X-linked disease, men and women are equally affected.
0: Thank you. Uh, the question, um, Dr. Schwartz mentioned the color dark brown glasses, you know, for protection. For RP, you know, the brightness really affects my daughter. She has to wear glasses. That is just RP, or is it related with something else? or? You know, because it's it's a shock to the system. They have to have the glasses on right away. And for RP, it is also the dark brown,
1: right? So the the amber. You know, it's good to somewhere like the Braille can sit down with you and show you the different tints. I think what you hear from a lot of patients is that the amber or dark brown color is just more soothing. That you get less glare, but can still see um, reasonably well. It doesn't cut down too much of the light. I will say, though, that everybody's a little bit different and there are certain tints that are, are more effective for some people than others. Um, and you can come, you know, someone like the Braille can show you the different types and you can try and see which one is most effective. But it's a good idea to wear them. Good UV light protection's important. We have a question
0: right here. Yes. Can you tell me, uh, does a certain tint work better on light eyes as opposed to dark eyes? Uh, I was told that gray, the grayish green, or whatever they call that, uh, is good for light eyes, green-eyed and blue-eyed people, as opposed to the brown, which is better for people with brown eyes. Now, I'm not sure which is better. Right.
1: I think, again, it's probably individual preference. I don't think there's any definitive science that says if you're green-eyed, use a gray tint. I think whatever you feel most comfortable with is reasonable. Yes, yeah, yes. In the earlier you say that there are so many types of RP, so how and where people can find out what type of RP they have. Right. So where can you find out what type of RP you have? Right. So the, the question, you know, we are doing well in terms of finding genes. We are not 100% there. But usually what I recommend is to um, get into a good RP specialist, a retinal degenerative specialist. And what we'll start with is just going through a careful history, um, you know, certain if you have a strong family history that says, oh, that's going to be dominant disease, we do pretty well finding the dominant disease. We find about 50% of those genes pretty quickly. Um, but that we can often get from family history. It's kind of like if you go to your doctor and say, my hair is falling out, I'm thirsty, and I'm going to the bathroom all the time, we right away think we need to order blood sugar. We need to make sure you don't have diabetes. When you come in and say, you know, I have a family history where grandma, second cousin, and my child are all affected with RP, then we think dominant and we order those genes. So it's kind of tailored to what your history tells us. For recessive disease, we found a lot of genes for that. The problem is we don't have a great screening system yet. We don't have an effective way to quickly screen whether you carry one of those 40 recessive genes that we found. So they're working on that. The National Eye Institute has a very good genotyping or genetic testing network where they're hoping that will move forward fairly quickly. So first step, I would say, get to a retinal generation specialist. Go through the, the family history where you're at. And then um, there are several places that we send blood to. The National Eye Institute is one. Um, Carver Lab at the University of Iowa is excellent. So we have a few options to send the blood and start exploring the gene in your family.
0: Uh, you mentioned the study with the dog Lancelot, and that it was specific to a particular retinal disease. Approximately how many retinal diseases have been identified in the RP parameter? And are these studies that you mentioned good for most, some, or a few of those those diseases?
1: Right. So it's a good question. So how many genes do we know exist that cause retinal degenerative disease now? We're probably up to about 240 different genes. That's a lot of genes. Um, And every one of those genes behaves in a different way. And every one of those genes will need a specific gene therapy to tackle it. And certain genes are going to be easier to tackle than others, but by the size of them, the particular protein, the particular effect on the cells, we know some diseases may be more gene therapy friendly than others, um, and and it is very specific. So you need to have that specific genetic glitch to be treated with this specific genetic therapy. So that's going to be the trick. And sometimes it's a needle in a haystack. We don't know the gene. You know, we we know lots of patients with RP that we don't know the exact gene in their case, and maybe just haven't found it yet. You know, there may be another 400 genes we don't even know are out there yet. So that's an ongoing work. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed the recording of this seminar. If you have questions about upcoming seminars or any of Braille Institute's free programs and services, including low vision rehabilitation consultations, talking book and Braille library services, and classes that teach skills for independent living, please call us at 1-800-BRAILLE. That's one 800 272 Four five five three, Or visit us on the web at www.brailleinstitute.org. We also invite you to request a free set of our Sound Solutions audio cassette series. This informative set of tapes provides useful information and tips for people who are losing their sight. Braille Institute, empowering visually impaired people to live fulfilling lives.